This morning's reading is taken from 2 Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, and can be found on page 1,222 in the Church Bible. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Saviour Jesus Christ received a faith as precious as ours, Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is short-sighted and blind, and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Oh, do keep that passage open before you, and you might also like to use the outline on the back of the morning service sheet as we look at this passage together. This time of year, um, it's uh, exam time has finished and results are awaited. And it reminds me of an English teacher who once said, God gives you a C, but hard work can give you an A. And the theme of this passage that we have this morning is one of cooperation between ourselves and the Lord Jesus Christ. What he's given us, and then there's what we, then through knowing him, add to in our lives. So, 2 Peter 1, 1 and 2 to start with. Now, although the New Testament admits of different degrees of progress in uh, the Christian faith, and different levels of reward in heaven, arguably, too. It's also very clear, its dominant note is that if we're Christians, we're all on the level. The only distinction that it recognises is between those who are in a relationship with Christ and those who are not in a relationship with Christ. So... Should we ever be tempted to be status seekers in any way, then a look at how Peter, an apostle, describes himself is very instructive. Peter was one of those privileged few who knew Jesus firsthand. He travelled with him for three years when he was in his public ministry on earth. He witnessed his life, his teaching, the key events, 
the fact that Peter was one of those commissioned by Jesus to ensure that a reliable account of all that he did and taught was uh, written and preserved for the benefit of not only later generations, but those throughout the world who were not contemporaneous with Jesus himself. So, an apostle, one of the twelve who are the foundation of the church, on whom the truth of the Christian faith rests. But he doesn't begin with that, lording himself over them in any way. He describes himself simply, first of all, as a servant of Jesus Christ. And then he mentions that he's been chosen to be an apostle. It wasn't a position marked out by personal merit. It was a position chosen by Christ himself. I can remember a bishop once talking, um, who was a good bishop, and um, he had... Uh, he said he used to tie a knot in his handkerchief in his pocket so that if he was ever sort of talking with his hand in his pocket, he would remember that he is here to serve the people of God. I subsequently heard, comparatively recently, that he actually had a reputation amongst the clergy as being rather bossy, but I thought at least his intention was good, so all credit to him. But it was... Uh, not just in being an apostle that Peter could have been tempted to outrank his readers. He was also a Jew, and they were predominantly Gentiles. There was a time, even as a Christian, when Peter couldn't have contemplated that Jew and Gentile were on the same level, that they were equal in status in the eyes of God. But now he can. For they too, he writes, have received a faith as precious as ours. No barriers of class or race or color or ethnicity between any who are in Christ. And look how he describes Jews, though, Jesus, though. Our God and our Savior. He reckons that this human being, Jesus, who he knew and who walked the earth with him, that is somehow he is also God because the characteristics of God and Saviour, they are the characteristics of the God of the Old Testament, a God who is righteous, a God who is a just God, a God who is fair, which is why relationship with him, or as Peter puts it, knowledge of him, is open to all, irrespective of background. So already we're seeing that what is a characteristic of Christ has become a characteristic of a Christian in the person of the Apostle Peter. And what both Peter, the Jewish Christian, and his readers, mostly Gentile Christians, have in common is that they have um, received it in faith. Now, that is not faith in the sense of a body of belief, like a creed or um, a statement of faith, but faith in the sense of ability to trust. Holidays make us appreciate quite a lot of things, don't they? I mean, uh, my first ever 
a foreign holiday was a day trip to Calais. I lived nearer to Calais than I did to London. And on that trip, I appreciated, I, for the first time, I thought, I, am, I can see the advantage of being a man, well, a boy, you know, 11. And that you don't need to go to the loo so often. And when you do, you don't have to queue up either. Now, on my second trip overseas, by which time I'd become 19, and I went to Nazareth Hospital, not to do anything particularly kind of useful, in, but I could bend bars, mix cement, and on one, one day I was de given the role of collecting the dirty laundry from the different wards. There was one ward I went to called the Labour Ward, which until that day I would have probably thought I was something political, um, but the racket that I could hear made me think, oh, something's a bit painful going on there. And although the English midwives said, oh, no, Arab women make too much fuss about all this, I still thought, yeah, but that, I'm glad I'm not a woman. That's another reason. You don't have to give birth, really. Um, but more recently, I think I can see a fourth benefit. When we, are, when we men ask a woman to marry us, they have a difficult decision to make. Do they have the faith to entrust themselves to us? After all, the natural outcome of marriage is to have children. For a woman to want to give birth and have children, she will want to make sure that somehow this guy is going to stick around and not be a runner that he's going to provide for her and her family when they're at a vulnerable time in the early months and years of life. Can she trust him with her future? How does she know he won't do a runner, love him and leave him? Presumably, unless they're blind, there is something in the man that inspires them with the ability to seize the offer and say yes. And that's why marriage is meant to be analogous to our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. He inspires us and gives us the gift of faith so that when the offer comes, when he calls us, we are confident enough in him to say yes. Verse 2, grace and peace. Well, they're stylized forms of how you start a letter in the ancient world of the first century. The Greeks would start it with grace and the Hebrews with shalom, peace. And the apostle Peter, Jew and Gentile in Christ, uses both. Incidentally, though, it's clear that the restless soul, the troubled soul, the searching soul can find peace. That sense of being where we're meant to be, with whom we're meant to be, through what Peter writes, the knowledge of God, who we have access to in our Lord Jesus Christ. Augustine, who was uh, one of the great writers of the, the church of the fourth century, his most famous saying is, our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. You know, he pictures us as kind of nomadic orphans wandering around this world, and we're adrift, and we don't know what it's about. And until we find peace with God, our creator, through Christ, 
we're destined to be restless all our days. But when we find him, we do find peace. We do find security. Well, as you can see from the outline and the passage, it's easily divided into three sections. Remember that he's writing to professing Christians. There's what God's done, there's what we're to do, and there's a conclusion. So, there's what God's done, verses 3 and 4. And a profitable way of examining these two verses is to ask some questions of them. What are we here for? And the answer Peter gives is for life and godliness. How are we equipped for that? The answer he gives is by his divine power, we're given everything we need. How does that come? Answer, through our knowledge of him who called us. And why has he called us? Well, it's down to his glory and goodness. Glory, Peter, like James and John, was one of those who saw Jesus at the transfiguration on Mount Hermon, where um, Jesus morphed into, I suppose, his kind of eternal heavenly existence just for a time. And they saw him as he really was. As the Apostle John recorded that experience, he said, we beheld his glory, the glory of the Father. And goodness, which means moral excellence. Peter was perhaps particularly aware of uh, the way he let down Christ, who he followed, and the contrast between himself and Christ. And at one point, you might recall, he said to Jesus, depart from me, for I am a wicked man. But then as Martin Luther, the uh, 16th century reformer of the church, observed, those who are forgiven most love most, because they're indebted most, at least from their perspective. So it's the person of Christ that attracts us and his power enables us to respond. So verse 4, it's because of God's glory and goodness that he's, to quote Peter, given us his very great and precious promises so that through them we may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So there's something for now, share in the divine nature, the moral transformation, and something for the future, share in the divine glory. Now the ancient world was much troubled by what it called the corruption of the world, by which it meant its transitoriness and its pointlessness. And they're not alone in thinking like that, are they? And it's not difficult to think that if you just see this life is for however long it's going to be, and you go through the same cycle, and you don't get the big picture from creation to recreation through fall and through Christ's redemption, Christ's rescue of us, well, then you may well come to the conclusion that it is just transitory, here today and gone tomorrow, to be forgotten, and there wasn't much point. I mean, you say, what am I here for? Well, we encourage our teenagers to work hard, 
so they can train for a qualification or go to uni, to get a good job, to marry well, to have kids who work hard, who train for a qualification or go to uni, to get a good job, to marry well, to have kids. And the cycle perpetuates. But is that really it? Well, no, Peter is saying, in this life we may participate in the divine nature. As we'll see, that means becoming more like the divine Jesus and knowing him. And in the life to come, what he says, escape the corruption of this world, its transitoriness caused by evil desires. It was, after all, evil desires that corrupted the first human beings and set this whole universe adrift from God. And it's by being in Christ, having the divine nature in us, that we have escaped that world. This is not all there is for us. There is a better life to come. So in the light of that, we need to reflect the divine nature so that we know our response to Christ's call was real, is genuine. And that so people can see that God is for real because something of him, albeit imperfectly, is reflected in us. So with that start, we're meant to progress, verses 5 to 9. Make every effort to add to your faith. Now, in uh, the ancient world, a group of people whose view of life was called Stoicism, they were the Stoics, they used to produce lists of virtues, but they were the product of unaided human effort. This list that is produced here is produced by a divine human cooperation. Indeed, the word add is very illustrative. It is the word that we now use as a choreographer, somebody who... uh, I suppose, um, directs the ballet. The person who, who can see that all these different dancers have their different moves and they can put those moves together so that there is some sense of coherence and that people can get a message through what they are, I suppose, conveying through their portrayal of some narrative. Now, you probably don't know that I once had my name down at the Royal Ballet for lessons. Now, if you immediately will then think you cannot possibly have actually had the lessons, you'd be dead right, because I had an English friend who, um, he had a girlfriend who was a member of the Swedish Royal Ballet, and when she came over to England, Um, she needed to do some work. And the way in which in those days they got work to teach ballet was to put their name up at the Royal Ballet saying what they were going to teach and people could sign up who wanted lessons from them. Well, she only knew four English people. I mean, after all, if you've got a blank sheet, it doesn't look like the course is going to be a goer, does it? So the four people she knew who were English got their names put up, unbeknown to us at the time, And that's how it came. She was inundated, and my name just 
evaporated. So I know a little bit as to what the choreographers kind of do. And, um, but the way in which I suppose they, if, you, if it wasn't dancers and it was actors, it would be much more the person who is the producer of the show or the musical or whatever, the Cameron Macintosh, rather than the person who writes the story or composes the music. But what those two people together, the dramatist and the choreographer in first century, what they do in cooperation is to produce something that is better. And that's what we think of, that we, God and us, working together, produce something that we could ever possibly achieve on our own. It is a cooperative effort, adding to our faith. But what is it that we are to add? Well, there's a list. Goodness or virtue or excellence, as the Greeks would call it. They'd say that the excellence of a knife is to cut and the excellence of a horse is to run. So what is the excellence of a human being? Well, it's to be good, like Jesus. Knowledge. There's an intellectual development along with the moral development. The Christian should never fear of the study of knowledge in whatever field it is, because nothing in God's world will ever contradict with God's word properly, both properly understood. And that is obvious when you consider that atheists don't have a monopoly of intelligence. They do not occupy all the places, the top places of learning in our institutions. There are plenty of Christians there as well. So it suggests to me that it isn't so much IQ that prevents a response to the call of Christ, but more likely the refusal to submit your will to him. Self-control. We're meant to control our emotions rather than be controlled by them. And if we're meant to get a grip of ourselves, it is only by allowing Christ to get a grip of us that we ever have a hope of achieving it. Perseverance or endurance. Um, when my kids were all young, they're all in their 20s or early 30s now, but when they were kind of young, we used to go camping for a couple of weeks, and they'd go on M&M camps as well, which meant that they had three weeks when they couldn't watch the telly, they couldn't watch videos, and they couldn't play on computers. So apart from doing active physical things, there's only books and a limited number of books at that. We might, they might have taken one or two each, but when they've read theirs, they have to start reading each other's. So I can remember Anna reading the SAS escape story, The One That Got Away, and uh, our second uh, eldest, John, reading, would you believe, A Woman of Substance. What lengths do you go to when there's nothing else to do? One book I actually dipped into at the time was um, John Stott's uh, People, My Teachers, in which he takes different people from history and, um, and draws out something of Christian value from their lives. Now, the one I, can, I was particularly struck by was Ernest Shackleton, who is a prime example of endurance. 
which was also the name of his boat. In December 1914, he set off from South Georgia to sail to Antarctica with the intention of crossing that Antarctic continent on foot. But in January 1915, his ship got trapped in an ice floe. By November 1915, it had sunk. So they then sailed in three small boats, little lifeboats, probably no longer than ten chairs put together here in length. And they set sail to Elephant Island. And then what were they to do? Well, they were still 800 miles from South Georgia. And you've got a boat that's 10 chairs long. So six of them set off in that one of those boats, sails and oars, and quite astonishingly, an enormous feat of navigation and seamanship, they reached South Georgia, but on the southern side. South Georgia has got dirty, great, big, snow-capped mountains. And three of them set off over the mountains so that they could get to the northern side, to Gritviken, which is where there was a Norwegian whaling station at the time. And they were successful. They then, made three, they then picked up the other three from, the south, uh, from South Georgia, and then they made three attempts in the following year to get back to Elephant Island. And they finally succeeded in August 1916 to rescue the other men. It was an amazing feat. That is endurance. This is, though, what uh, Shackleton wrote. When I look back on those days, I have no doubt that providence guided us, not only across those snowfields, but across the storm-white sea that separated Elephant Island from our landing place on South Georgia. I know that during that long and racking march of 36 hours over the unnamed mountains and glaciers of South Georgia, it seemed to me often that we were four, not three. I said nothing to my companions on the point, but afterwards, Worsley said to me, Boss, I had a curious feeling on the march that there was another person with us. Crean, the third, confessed to the same idea. Now, of course, there'll be loads of things, like on their enduring travel that will be thrown up as we endure our march of Christian discipleship that will try and prevent us from adding to our faith. Opposition from without and evil desires from within. Perseverance is a quality that enables us to sail through the storms of life. Then godliness, aware of God in every area of life. Then brotherly kindness, Philadelphia in Greek. That's the mark of the Christian. Able to transcend the human barriers of class and culture and ethnicity. Something we have to work hard at, bearing each other's burdens, 
guarding unity by avoiding gossip, prejudice and narrowness, forgiving one another and not bearing grudges. And then love. Greek has at least four words for love, of which brotherly Philadelphia is one. Agape is another one. And, uh, and they also have one for friendship. And it's where it, which is based on mutual benefit, aided by the attractiveness of the other's personality. And then there's eros, sexual love, which is based on a mutual satisfaction evoked by a particular attraction in the other. But agape is the reverse of those. Agape is evoked not by what, that, that we were lovable, but because God is love. And he desired our highest good by being in a relationship with him, by ending our nomadic orphan existence and becoming his children. And so concerned was he for this that he sacrificed himself to achieve it so that all the rubbish we'd done in life that deserved his punishment and there was a barrier between us, he removed by taking upon himself, by becoming a human being. That's how he achieved it. And it's that quality in God seen in Christ that we are to reproduce so that people can see a quality of God and believe too. Add these things and you are morally and spiritually productive and effective. Lack them and you only have spiritual death. The key for the transformation is the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hearing his call, responding, continuing in a relationship with him until in the end we enjoy full knowledge of him face to face. Not to see that is to be short-sighted and blind, Peter says, to which you immediately think, how can you be short-sighted and blind? Question mark. Well, the answer is, if we're blind to heavenly things, that's eternal things, then we will only see a little way ahead. As we're too engrossed in earthly things. We don't get the big picture of God's creation and why he created it, and his recreation when he perfects it at the end of time, nor understand the reason why things go wrong in this life is ultimately because the first human beings stuffed it up with God and did their own thing rather than follow him. And so things have gone awry ever since. But how through Christ things can be reversed and we can be forgiven and we can be brought into a personal relationship with him. So a conclusion. To make our calling and election sure is what Peter says. Here's the familiar paradox. That God chooses us, but we also have a meaningful choice of God. And both are true. By adding these virtues in cooperation with him, we provide evidence for ourselves and for others that our response to his call was genuine. And if it's genuine, then negatively we will never fall. 
and positively we will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Again, two ways of describing the God of the Old Testament applied to this human being who is also divine, Jesus. And it's done by cultivating in cooperation the, so that the genuine Christian may still stumble but will never ultimately fall as we make progress in the Christian life. And at the end, like in their day, the victor returning home from the Olympic Games would be welcomed with great celebration. As in fact today, if, you win, if your team wins the Premier League or the FA Cup, they'll drive around their city in an open-top bus and be greeted ecstatically by uh, their fans. So the Christian shouldn't just scrape into heaven. A Christian should look back with gratitude at what we have been saved from and look forward with hope at what awaits us, but live now cultivating in cooperation with Jesus these Christian virtues. And next week we'll see the truth, the foundation of truth on which this common Christian experience rests. Amen.